And you know what we're seeing on, on these Messianic prophecy studies, I think this is number four. Um, we're getting a lot of folks uh, that are that are watching these things uh, after you know after we we record them on Monday nights. Um, I know everyone's got different schedules, and and uh, you know, some folks are are pretty busy, and uh, and there's there's uh, some folks that are watching these from totally different uh, time zones. Hi, Bethany Wheeler, over in uh, I believe you're in Okinawa. So um, it's really kind of cool seeing all of these all of these names and stuff appear uh, who are watching, them. and hopefully they're encouraging for you. Um, greet the saints over there, and uh, anywhere else that that you might be might be tuning in from. <clears throat> Um, I'm excited to put these together uh, and and kind of go over these things with you uh, because I've, I view this stuff as really practical as something that you're going to be able to use on on a fairly regular basis. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, I was just telling the the folks that are, that are in the study uh, with us tonight um, that uh, I'm meeting with somebody who's kind of on the very 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 far progressive left and part of an organization um, that typically you know, sometimes is sided with Christianity. Uh, but has been part of an organization that typically, you know, has views that are that are very um, not consistent with with a lot of the stuff that that's found in the scripture. Uh, and I'm going to be using the messianic uh, things uh, with the conversation there that, uh, on this Thursday. So uh, I use this stuff all the time. Uh, so hopefully, it's it's proving to be to be an encouragement for you. So tonight we're going to be in Genesis 49. Last week we talked about how the Messianic line uh, was uh, brought to Abram, then Abraham, as his name changed, to Isaac, <clears throat> and then to Jacob. And so we also, before that, <clears throat> just a little bit talked about how the line could have been um, narrowed down to uh, Shem. So that's, you know, possible. You know, we, we looked at the, 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 pro the prophecy there in, in Genesis, I believe, 9-6. Um, I think it was 9-6. Let me check my notes. No, 9-26 and 27. Um, and how it could possibly be that God dwells in the tents of Shem instead of Japheth dwelling in the tents of Shem. So, um, which would kind of make sense, again. In the book of Genesis, what God's doing is narrowing the line down. He's, he's letting us know. So out of the three sons of Noah that survived the flood, which one of those should we look for kind of kind of this happening for? And then <clears throat> regardless of whether that was Shem or not, uh, that was a prophecy. We have Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. Now we're going to look to see how Jacob narrows that down because as you know, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. He's the father of the tribes. And so how do we determine which tribe we need to look for now? Because if God is narrowing it down, that really makes sense. Let's narrow it down to the right tribe and make sure we're looking in the right place. So <clears throat> what's taken place in Genesis 49 is, is uh, Jacob is close to death. Uh, one of the things that the patriarchs used to do uh, they used to do this thing called the patriarchal blessing, and they would, you know, lay hands uh, on people on on their on their children, and they would prophesy. And when they prophesied, they would uh, tell them what their future was going to look like. Uh, so Jacob, he had a lot of prophesying to do here uh, with with all the kids, and Joseph got a double portion, right? Ephraim and Manasseh, <clears throat> and it's funny because if you remember the the account there. Uh, Jacob did the same thing uh, legitimately that he did secretly. 
and putting right hand on the younger, left hand on the on the older. And Joseph didn't like that. He he switched his hands and he's like, nope, that's the way it's going to be. Which is funny because Jacob being the younger out of him and Esau pretended to be Esau instead of letting the blessing actually take its course. So uh, later on in life, it kind of seemed like he learned his lesson, uh, so to speak. Um, but in Genesis 49, we see the, the different tribes. You know, we start off with Reuben and then we have Simeon and Levi. And then uh, we're going to get to uh, Judah. All right. So verses uh, 8 through 12. It says, Judah, your brother shall praise you. So Genesis 49, uh, 8. <clears throat> Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck. I'm sorry, did I say 48? I meant, sorry, been a long work day. Uh, Genesis 49, 8. Let's hope, hopefully I said that. If I didn't, sorry. Uh, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to choice vine. To the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. So <clears throat> what we see here, we're not going to pay too much attention to the first part here because he's just kind of talking about, you know, the might of, of the tribe of Judah. And, and really it was, especially after the... Um, the separation of, of Israel and Judah, it became known as Judah for a reason, and it became very, very powerful militarily. Um, just like Ephraim kind of became the chief tribe of, of the north, and, and Israel kind of became known as Ephraim as well. Uh, so where I want to pick up is, is verse 10. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, a couple things here. First off, it says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Well, who has a scepter? Well, kings do. So remember, what we have here is, I think, what, 70 people uh, came down to uh, Egypt with, uh, you know, when, with the invitation of Joseph. Uh, there's no king, right? They're living in Egypt, Pharaoh's king. So what Jacob is doing here is he's throwing out a prophecy that the kingly tribe was going to be Judah. Now, here's what's interesting. We know the history of Israel, right? After uh, Samuel <clears throat> came about, uh, people said they wanted a king. So Samuel said, all right, go for it. And God, I mean, God first said, okay. Um, and then the people chose. And the people did not consult the scripture as to who should be king. Uh, so what they did is they did what the nations did. They picked somebody who is head and shoulders above the rest, tall, you know, looks the part, looks like a mighty specimen. And they picked a guy from Benjamin. They picked a guy named Saul. Nothing was spoken of uh, the ruler's, uh, the scepter or the ruler's staff from anybody from Benjamin. It was spoken of by Judah. So we know how King Saul turned out. It wasn't very long before he was rejected. And Samuel went and... Uh, God told him to go to uh, Jesse the, the Ephrathite um, and get, uh, you know, there he would find somebody. And all of his sons passed before him, and there, there was David. So 
Jesse was from the tribe of Judah. So when God picks a king, he picks a king according to his word. He picks a king from the tribe of Judah. So David is the beginning of that lineage. And for the southern kingdom, all the way through, um, pretty much, you have somebody um, on the throne from that tribe. Okay, the legitimate kings. Up until the time of Zedekiah. Uh, So then after uh, Nebuchadnezzar destroys Jerusalem and carries everybody away, they then come back. And what's interesting is the governor, Zerubbabel, is also from the tribe of Judah and a direct descendant in the lineage of David and in the lineage of Jesus Christ. So God put that in place, okay? Uh, And of course, we have Jesus' lineage going all the way back uh, to David as well. So find it very interesting that right here in the beginning uh, in Genesis, we have Judah being the kingly tribe. But Notice what it says. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until... Okay? So we've got that until in there, which means there is someone that is going to be coming here um, that is going to be different. Now, some people don't have Shiloh until Shiloh comes. Some people have, and I'm looking at the alternate translation here, until he comes to whom it belongs. That's not, a, that's not the most accurate translation. The most accurate translation in the Hebrew is that this is a proper name. So that's why New American Standard translates it as a proper name. Uh, so that's what actually we're going we're gonna to start off by talking about is this name, Shiloh. So in other words, Judah is going to be the kingly tribe until this individual who's called Shiloh comes. And what's going to happen to Shiloh? Who, what's what's, uh, what's going to take place uh, for him? And it says, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now that word peoples can also be translated, you know, a lot of times it's Gentiles, nations, uh, peoples. It's, it means everybody, not just the nation of Israel. Everybody outside the nation of Israel. So this person, Shiloh, is going to have the obedience of every person, all the peoples. So that lets us know the scope of this, and it lets us know that no king in Israel could have ever fit this bill. Not even Solomon in all of his glory could have done this, could have fit this. So Shiloh, <clears throat> let's, let's look at this for a second. What does the name Shiloh mean? Well, it's the, the root word uh, for the name Shiloh comes from the, for the Hebrew uh, verb shalah, meaning to rest or to be secure. So, in other words, not just go to sleep and have rest, but, but to have rest as in being secure. No fear of enemies, of, of you know, uh, lack of supplies, or, or whatever the case might be. So, the word Shiloh, properly understood, uh, if it's a proper name, would be the rest bringer, or the one who brings rest and security. Okay? Um, freedom from your strivings, so to speak. So we'll get to that in a second because uh, we'll see, I think, that Jesus actually announces himself as this one. Okay, so we'll, we'll get to that here in a second. So is there any um, extra biblical proof um, that this was regarded as messianic? Well, yes. The second century AD, there, there, there's these things out there called targums. And, and what a targum is, is it's a... Um, paraphrase of the Old Testament. 
One of the, the more famous Targums out there is from the second century AD. It's the, it's the Targum of Onkelos. Um, and the way it actually, the paraphrase, so second century AD, this is a paraphrase of the Old Testament, uh, translates this. It doesn't translate until Shiloh comes. It translates it until Messiah comes. And the Jerusalem Targum does the same thing. It actually translates it until King Messiah comes. Um, and it was uh, Jerusalem Targums a little bit after that, the final, uh, the final editing of that. So it lets us know that even Jewish sources, even after the time of Christ, recognize this as a messianic type of a phrase. Uh, rabbi Akilah also recognized it. He was a famous rabbi, uh, recognized this as well. Okay, so there's there's a little proof out there that uh, from the Jewish sources that this is designed to be uh, messianic. There's no direct quote though in the New Testament. That's one thing you have to understand. But looking at it from from the New Testament perspective, where did the lineage of Judah, the kingly tribe, where did that stop and kind of culminate? Well, of course, it's Jesus. He himself said he was the son of David, right? So, um, and he even brought up the whole concept, you know, where, where David said, the Lord said to my Lord, uh, sit in my right hand until I make a ruler a footstool for your feet. And so David even, or he says, you know, how can David, you know, call him Lord? And, you know, they left him speechless because the, the, the younger generations aren't called Lord over the older generations, right? So the next thing we see is, is you know, how long will this, uh, will Judah have authority? Well, it says very clearly until Shiloh comes, right? So until that takes place. And then we see his, his, the, the extent of, of his rule. It's over all the peoples. To him shall be the obedience of all the peoples, right? So... <clears throat> Where do we where do we kind of go from here? So let's let's uh, let's take a look at Matthew chapter eleven because I think this is one of the key passages. Well, it is the key passage, I think. Matthew chapter eleven. Matthew chapter eleven, and one of the most famous sayings that Jesus had, verse twenty eight where he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So when he says to me, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, he, he is announcing himself as this rest bringer. Now, this is, this is an interpretation. Okay, there's, there's, no, there's no text here. Um, where he's saying, uh, you know, I'm, you know, I'm quoting Genesis uh, 49 here. There is a quote there, uh, at least in America Standard, in verse 29, and it is, let me see, uh, Jeremiah 6:16. So he is, you know, kind of referencing that. But when he's announcing that he's going to give him rest, he's announcing that he's the rest bringer, and that's who this Shiloh is. That's the literal name that Shiloh means, rest bringer. So he, in essence, is announcing the fact that he is that rest bringer. Um, so then if we go back to, to Genesis 49 for a second, this is going to be a short one, and then we'll, we'll head over to Numbers chapter 24, because that one's actually a really cool one as well. Um, we see that he, he does something kind of interesting. He says he ties his foal to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine, that kind of reminds me of, of Zechariah, 
uh, where in Zechariah 10, where he enters uh, into Jerusalem on the on a on a colt, the foal of a donkey, right? Really kind of interesting. Um, and then he washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. You think there's any connection there, right? Um, absolutely, there is. You know, so there's there's a complete connection with this whole thing. I think um, again, nothing nothing definitive. And, and, and here, here's one of the things with Messianic prophecy. Some of them are absolutely spot on, definitive. Yes, this is it. Others, we have to do a little bit more interpretation um, on these types of thing, on these type of things. And this is one of them. But again, I don't think it's too much of a stretch because who else fits this? Okay, where does the rule of Judah? come to a close? Who is, the, who is the culmination, the end point, the terminus of the kingly line of David? And what king out there that came from David has the obedience of all the peoples or will have the obedience of all the peoples? I mean, Philippians 2, right? Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So what we see in this particular passage is and again, in Genesis, and this is where we're stopping in Genesis, we have the seed of woman. I'm going to crush the, the, the head of the seed of, of the serpent. Um, we're going to see, or the head of the serpent. We're, we see uh, them being uh, brought down to, to Shem. Then we see Abraham. Then we see Isaac. Then we see Jacob. Uh, now we see Judah. And then the next division we're going to see is in 2 Samuel, uh, we're going to see... Uh, David. Okay, so I'm going to stop there uh, for, for, for just a moment, open up for any questions uh, before I move on to the next one. No? Good. Okay. Numbers 24. Numbers 24. This one is really cool. I'm a Big fan of this one. Um, if you remember a guy named Balaam, uh, Balaam was a bad dude, right? Uh, Balaam was a, a Gentile prophet uh, that came from the mountains of the east. Numbers 23.7, so kind of mysterious, right? Came from the mountains of the east. And the, the king of Moab, by the name of Balak, hires Balaam. Because uh, he sees these guys coming, and he, and he sees what happened with Amalek, and he's like, oh, you know, Sihon and Og, and, and he's like, oh, we got to, I'm in trouble. <laughs> we, we need some help here. So what he does is he goes find, he goes and finds this guy, Balaam, and he says, I'm going to honor you. I'm going to give you wealth. I'm going to give you honor. I'm going to give you praise. All I want you to do is prophesy against this nation. And Balaam's like, nope, not going to do it. So he becomes more insistent. And so basically what Balaam finally says is, um, he says, let me go ask God. God says, no. King goes back and says, hey, come on, please. Pretty, I mean, obviously I'm paraphrasing, right? Pretty please, you know, come on, just be cool for once, right? Uh, and, and then Balaam says, I'm going to go ask God again. God says, yeah, go, but only speak what, I'm, what I tell you. And that's what Balaam says. From the beginning, Balaam's like, hey, I only speak what God tells me to speak. I know you want me to curse these guys, but I'm only going to speak what God wants me to speak. So from the beginning, Balaam has the appearance of being an upright, honest, 
prophet with integrity. I'm only going to speak what God wants me to speak. Yeah, okay, sure. And so what happens next is, you know, Balaam goes out, saddles his donkey, and the angel of the Lord is there with a sword ready to, you know, lop off his head. And, you know, he's beating the donkey and the donkey sits down and he's just really mad. And the donkey talks, right? We, we know the story. The donkey talks and finally Balaam sees. <laughs> the, the funniest thing about that whole account is that Balaam converses with the, with the donkey. It, like there's nothing out of the ordinary about this. You know, um, in, in the conversation, when the donkey starts talking, you don't hear Balaam being recorded as saying, why are you talking? You know, he just having a conversation. He was so mad. It didn't, didn't even register. Um, I just, I just, sorry, I find that funny. Uh, and, and so the reason was, is that God told Balaam, don't go the first time. That should have been it. Balaam never should have gone back to God the second time and said, hey, can I go with these guys? God already spoke. That's a really important piece, guys. When, how many times does God have to say something for it to be what needs to get done? You know, it's, it's, God's not like a human being where if we don't like the answer, you know, we ask God what to do and then we go ask him again because we didn't like the answer. That's not the way it works. And so finally, after that happened, though, God's like, hey, tell you what, um, your donkey saved your life. Uh, you need to be thankful. Go ahead and go now, but only speak what I want you to speak. So what happens is, is Balaam goes and goes to these different high places. He starts prophesying. And what comes out of his mouth, and he warned Balak about this, what comes out of his mouth is blessing. Blessing on the nation of Israel. And Balak's like, hey, I'm not paying you for blessings, man. I'm paying you for curses. And Balaam's like, hey, I, I told you, man, I'm only going to say what God wants me to say. That's it. That's it. So <clears throat> he, keeps going to different <laughs> he keeps going to different mountains and high places because he's like, well, maybe the problem is the venue. Maybe the location's bad. It's bad juju on this location. We're going to go over here and maybe this location's better and, and Yahweh will go ahead and curse, curse them. Um, never happens, right? Never happens. So finally, we get to the last prophecy in, in Numbers chapter 24. And by the way, the spoiler alert on Balaam, you, you, you guys know this already. The spoiler alert on Balaam is, um, and we have to piece a couple of things together from the New Testament and the Old Testament. Um, right after that in chapter 25, when the nation of Israel is there uh, outside of Peor, uh, the Israelite men and the Moabite ladies start acting immorally. Uh, and so basically what Balaam did is he counseled Balak. He's like, look, I can't curse him because I can only say what God wants me to say. But you got some really good looking ladies here. And I tell you what, you start parading them in front of these Israelites. I know people, they're going to fall. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, in chapter 25, you get, uh, you get what took place and you get what Phinehas did. Um, a prince of Israel took one of these Moabite ladies uh, right into his tent. And he went through and got him right with the spear, pinned them both to the ground. 24,000 people died that day because of what Balaam counseled Balak. And so in Numbers 31, when they go and the sons of Israel attack Moab, they kill Balaam. 
Okay. So check out Revelation chapter 2, verse 14 as well, and you can get a little bit of insight uh, as well. So <clears throat> enough of the background, though. Let's, let's check out the actual context. Any questions so far on the background before I actually get into the message or the, the, the prophecy? Nope. Okay. So this one is is in my top 10 of all messianic prophecies it might it might be in the top five i find this one so cool the the ones i find really great are the ones that from a long ways away actually predict world history now this one was done about 1407 bc right so 1400 years before the coming of christ that's a long time right? That's a very long time. So it, and this one might seem a little bit weird when we first read it. A lot of these prophecies do, but once you start breaking it down and, and checking it out, you find that it's, it's actually really amazing. So here's what Balaam says. Um, let's go down to verse uh, 15. So this is Balaam's prophecy. He took up his discourse and said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, and the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the visions of the Almighty, falling down yet having his eyes uncovered. Now here's where the prophecy begins. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be a possession. Seir and its enemies also will be a possession while Israel performs valiantly. One from Jacob shall have dominion and will destroy the remnant from the city. And he looked at Amalek and took up his discourse and said, Amalek was the first of the nations, but his end shall be destruction. And he looked at the Kenite and took up his discourse and said, Your dwelling place is enduring, and your nest is, in, is set in the cliff. Nevertheless, Cain will be consumed. How long will Asher keep you captive? Then he took up his discourse and said, Alas, who can live except God has ordained it? But ships shall come from the coast of Katim. They shall afflict Asher and will afflict Eber. So they will also come, and they also will come to destruction." Then Balaam arose and departed and returned to his place, and Balak also went his way. Cool, right? Yeah, it is. It is, actually. So let's, uh, let, let's break this down. So how do we know that this is a Messianic prophecy? Because it's kind of weird, right? Um, a few different things. Uh, I got all this stuff written down so I don't forget it because there's a lot of information here. Uh, number one speaks of what Israel will do to Moab in the latter in the last days. Okay, and we'll we'll take a look at this here uh, in a second. Um, matter of fact, I've got. Let me. My professor um, that I took this class under at first um, is is a Hebrew master. Um, I took Hebrew under him for a couple of years. Hebrew master. Um, he went to Hebrew Union University. There's only two in the world. One's in Jerusalem. Believe it or not, the other one's in Cincinnati, Ohio. Go figure. 
Um, and he got a full ride, and he's not Jewish, so that's kind of rare back in those days uh, when, when that, that happened. He got full scholarship uh, as a Gentile, so as a goy, as they, as they called him. That's the Hebrew word for, for Gentile. Um, <clears throat> and so what we see here is that, you know, kind of what's, what's going to be taking place in the latter days. So I'm going to be um, kind of referring back to the, to the translation here um, a little bit uh, from, you know, from time to time. Uh, let's see. So what we have here is that it also uh, focuses attention uh, on a great Israelite king who would crush the enemies of God's people. Whenever you start to see those types of grandiose concepts um, of, of kings coming through here and, and crushing, um, you know, a scepter shall rise from, from Israel and, and shall crush uh, through the forehead of Moab, kind of grandiose language, lets us know that we're probably talking something messianic here. Um, more importantly, verses 20 through 24 establishes the chronology and it's really super exact. I mean, amazingly exact as to what's taking place here. Um, early church writers, uh, viewed it as messianic as well as the early Jewish rabbis. Uh, so, um, kind of a unanimous connotation here. One of the things that people like to kind of take a look at, though, um, they, they kind of wonder where it says a star shall come forth from Jacob. Is that talking about the star that was there when Jesus was born? Um, it, could, it could be. I'm not going to say it's not, but I'm definitely not going to say it is. And I'm going to tell you why, why I have those answers. The reason I'm going to say it could be is because, like I said, in Numbers 23.7, Balaam uh, is from the mountains of the east. Where did the wise men come from? From the east. Now, I know it was a long time later, um, but perhaps, you know, they had heard of Balaam coming from possibly in that general area. Who, who knows? Um, and there's definitely the star that was associated with it. How else would they have kind of known about it? Where else is that kind of written? They, they had a concept of a star coming out. Um, so could have been. But the reason I don't think that it is is because the Gospel of Matthew doesn't say it is. And one of the things that Matthew is really good at is documenting the Old Testament prophecies and their fulfillments in the life of Christ. They're all through his Gospel. The reason is, is that Matthew was written for the Jewish people. And so that's why you see all of those Old Testament references. You know, this is to fulfill what was written. This is to fulfill what was written. And it quotes the Old Testament. You don't see that a lot in a lot of the other Gospels. It's a little bit there, but, but not as much. Okay. Um, so Matthew doesn't do that. And you, it would be pretty, um, uh, should, should be there. You know, I don't want to put words in God's mouth, but it would be more consistent than not to say, yeah, let's, let's, this was to fulfill what was written in Numbers uh, by Balaam. A star shall come forth from Jacob. So it, it's not there. Um, and also, the, the star doesn't come forth from Jacob. Okay? Um, it settled over the land and, and, and shone down to let them know. And from the context, it kind of seems like the star is a person. Again, let's, let's look at this. Verse 17, I see him now, but not near. I behold him, or sorry, I see him, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Judah and shall crush, crush 
through the forehead of, uh, of Moab. So it seems like the star is actually referring to the person that's going to be coming. Okay. What I think this is referencing, um, let's head all the way back to Revelation 22. All the way back to Revelation 22. At the close of the New Testament. Verse 16. One of the last things Jesus says before he closes out the scripture. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things. For the churches, or for the churches, I am the root, the descendant of David, the bright morning star. He is the star. And I think that's what's being referenced here um, in uh, Numbers chapter 24. Okay? So don't think it's the, it's the star above Jesus, uh, above Bethlehem there. Uh, but again, it's, uh, you know, still pretty, pretty interesting. And there is a, a concept where Jesus is the star. Uh, let's see. Questions so far? Uh, there's going to be a lot of detail in this one, so I just want to kind of stop and ask any questions. Yeah, I do notice that the uh, um, stars, when, when reference to stars are used in the book of Revelation, they're referring to angels when they say stars. Yeah, a lot of times there. Um, or to the, yeah, yeah, that's true, to, to the angels there. But in that particular case, Jesus, he's definitely the, the bright morning star, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, so the next thing we see as we, as we move on here is, you know, the concept of, of crushing through the forehead of Moab and tearing down the sons of, of Sheth. So... Uh, the star obviously, oh, sorry, let me back up a second. The star obviously talking about, uh, you know, the glory of God. Uh, the crown, though, or, or the scepter, meaning the crown, right? Mighty conqueror. And notice what we see. We see back in Genesis, the passage we just read, the scepter, right? But how's the king, or how's that king mentioned there until Shiloh comes? He's the rest bringer. Here, he's the conqueror. Well, what's he going to do? Is he going to bring rest or is he going to conquer? Yeah, he's going to do both. He's going to conquer to bring rest to his people. Okay, really. So what we're seeing here, now pay attention to this, this too. We're seeing these prophecies start to build on each other and giving a very unique picture of all the different things that Messiah is going to do. Does Jesus bring rest? Yes. Is he a conqueror? Yes. Does the conquering bring the rest? Yes. Absolutely. Okay. Um, let's see. So we've got a couple of nations starting out here. Um, we've got Moab uh, and we have Edom, right? So it, it seems like, you know, in, in Edom, you know, I'm sorry, Moab is uh, talked about in uh, Jeremiah chapter 48, um, as in, in if we're not necessarily going to go there, um, check it out though, write it down. Genesis or, or sorry, Jeremiah 48, 49 as well. Um, what you see is that Edom, uh, sorry, Moab is still around and it's being viewed as almost like a, as a type of enemy that's going to be defeated. As a matter of fact, you know what? We are going to go there because there's something I want to bring up. 
the last verse of that passage, or of that chapter, Genesis, uh, Jeremiah 48. I keep wanting to say Genesis, sorry. Jeremiah 48. So Jeremiah, and, and you get in, in uh, Jeremiah 49, you get the prophecies against Edom too. Um, but in Jeremiah 48, you know, starting in verse 40, you know, he's, he's really nailing down uh, Moab here. Uh, and actually, check out verse 39, uh, J- uh, Jeremiah 48, 39. He says, how shattered it is, how they have wailed, how Moab has turned his back. He is ashamed. I think that's interesting he uses that word shattered there because that's the same word that she used back in the other, right? Um, and so he talks about all the punishment that's going to happen. Let's go to verse 46. Woe to you, Moab. The people of Chemosh have perished, for your sons have been taken away captive and your daughters into captivity. Chemosh, um, their God that demanded child sacrifice. Disgusting, horrible. But look at verse 47. Yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days, declares the Lord. Well, that's church age. See, Moab is a type of of nation that is going to be destroyed, restored, and brought into the kingdom. Okay, Physically, that never happened to them. Physically, they were destroyed, wiped out. Um, but he's using them as a type of a nation that's going to, be, going to be in the latter days. He does the same thing with the Philistines in Zechariah. He does the same thing. I think it's in Zechariah 10 or Zechariah 9. Zechariah 10, I think. Might be 9. Um, where he talks about how they're going to be like a, a clan in Judah. Like a Jebusite. Right? So he's, he's going to uh, take the Philistines and he's going to graft them in. Well, how does he do that? He does that through the Gentiles, right? So really, really kind of cool stuff when you piece all that together. So back to, back to Numbers 24, just for a moment. So Edom and Moab are kind of like the, the type of nations that rebel against God. They're going to get destroyed. And, and for the people there, you know, that, that's encouraging because Moab's kind of standing in, in their way. Um, and it says there in the end of verse 18, Israel's going to perform valiantly. Then in verse 19, one from Jacob shall have dominion and will destroy the remnant from the city. Um, that's where people go, okay? When you, when you have an invading nation, happen to Israel all the time and to Judah all the time, they would sweep through the land and then people would come and they would merge into the city, uh, into the walled defended cities. Sometimes that would save them, a lot of times it wouldn't. And so when he says, and will destroy the remnant of the city, it's, just, it's meaning the nation's wiped out. There's not going to be any pockets left. Okay, people are going to be absolutely destroyed. And Jacob, and notice what it says, one from Jacob will have dominion. It's the Messiah. All right? But now what we're going to deal with here, starting in verse 20, is the chronology for when the Messiah is going to come. Okay, first thing, verse 20. And he looked up at Amalek and took up a discourse and said, Amalek was the first of the nations, but his end shall be destruction. So Amalek, Amalek was the first nation. This is what it means when he says the first of the nations. It was the first nation to attack Israel when it came out from Egypt. All right. First nation. All right. Um, Oh, also, oh, I totally forgot. I had a note on the page and my Bible hit it up. Um, 
Uh, also, how we know, sorry, this is complete tangent, but it's, it's, it's pretty cool. Another way, reason that we know that the whole concept of a star being messianic out of Numbers 24, because this is really kind of the, one of the major places that this, he's called this. In the first century, there was a false messiah by the name of Bar Kokhba. Or, so um, Bar means son. He was a false messiah in the first century. So the, the word Bar means son. Kokhba means star. Coming from this kind of concept. Kind of cool. So the false messiah named himself son of the star. Um, anyway, so that's that. Amalek, back, back to Amalek. Uh, first nation to attack Israel, right? First nation to attack Israel. Um, and that's Exodus 17, 8. Saul did quite a number on him out of, in, in 1 Samuel 15. Hezekiah kind of finished him off in 1 Chronicles chapter 4. Um, verses 39 through 43. So we, we kind of see how these things kind of all, all played out here. Um, so Amalek, he's saying, is going to be destroyed. So Amalek is going to be destroyed. And so if that doesn't happen until Hezekiah, that's letting us know kind of what that chronology is taking a look at. Then he says in verse 21, and he looked at the Kenite and took up a discourse and said, your dwelling place is enduring and your nest is set in the cliff. Well, the Kenites, uh, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, Kenite, and they had a very cordial relationship with Israel. They, they traveled along with Israel. Numbers chapter 10, verse 29, uh, Judges uh, chapter 1, verse 16, Kenites are there, but they never incorporated into the nation. And so what ends up taking place is they get destroyed as a nation in the Assyrian captivity. Now pay attention to this. Look at verse 22. Nevertheless, Cain will be consumed. How long will Asher keep you captive? Cain is another way or is another name for the Kenites. So the Kenites are going to be consumed and Asher are the Assyrians. Asher are the Assyrians. Look it up. It's all over the place. You can, you can look at all the history and see that, that Asher is referencing the Assyrians. So let's pay attention here. We've got um, Amalek being destroyed, kind of kicking off the chronology here for us. That takes place um, by, in Hezekiah, so, or in the time of Hezekiah. The Assyrians are rising to power at that particular time. As a matter of fact, remember Sennacherib came during the days of Hezekiah in 701 and surrounded the nation or the city of Jerusalem, and the angel of the Lord went through and struck him dead. But during that whole time frame, uh, Cain, the Kenites, were destroyed, and that's exactly what it says. Nevertheless, Cain will be consumed. How long will Asher, the Assyrians, keep you captive? Okay, so it's now it's it's prophesying the dominance of the Assyrian Empire which took place 750, right around 750 to you know, 701, a little bit later than that too, uh, even into like the, the 650, 639, somewhere around there. Um, 605 is when they were completely wiped out, not wiped out, but they were displaced as the world power when Nebuchadnezzar defeated a coalition of Assyria and Egypt at the Battle of Carchemish, okay? Um, so, and... Sorry, uh, I was thinking of another battle there, uh, but Carchemish is the, is the main one, 605. 
So then what you see in verse 23, then he took up his discourse and said, alas, who can live except, the, except God has ordained it, but ships shall come from the coast of Katim, and they shall afflict Asher and will afflict Eber. Now, Katim, okay, I'm going to kind of let you know this. Katim is what the islands in the Mediterranean, Cyprus and the islands in the Mediterranean are called. It's also where Alexander the Great sailed from to conquer the whole land there. Now, uh, now, First Maccabees not a a book in the Bible, but it's a good history book. Okay, First Maccabees one one. I wrote it down. After Alexander the Macedonian, Philip's son, who came from the island from the land of Katim, had defeated Darius, king of the Persians and the Medes. He came. He became king in his place, and first, but he first or came king in his place, having first ruled Greece. I can't read my own handwriting. Katim. First Maccabee said is where Alexander came from. Okay, kind of cool. Shall afflict Asher and will uh, and will afflict Eber. So Asher and Eber here. Let's take a look at these guys in in regards to geography. All right, Assyrians were still around a bit, um, but Asher that's the area. <clears throat> again, if you want to look at at a geography, Asher is um, the Shemites, the, the the Semites. Okay, remember this. <clears throat> Sorry, back up just a second. Shem, Ham, Japheth. Israelites are descended from Shem. That's why they're called Semitic, Shemitic. Okay, another way to say it. <clears throat> Asher is also descended from Shem. So the Assyrians and the Israelites were actually cousins. Okay, descended from Shem. And Eber... All right, Eber, also a, it's actually great-grandchild of Shem. Those are the Western Shemites, Semites, Syria, Phoenicia, Canaan. That's where those folks all settled. The, the uh, Semites from Asher descended in Mesopotamia. So what he's saying here is that Greece is going to come and he's going to afflict the Western Shemitic people, the Western lands, and the eastern lands. If you look at what Alexander did, he went through and he conquered all of Syria, Palestine, Canaan. Um, he didn't attack Jerusalem because of some pretty really cool miraculous things that took place that Josephus records for us. Um, and then he also went all the way into uh, you know Persia, Babylon, Assyria, all of that area and conquered it. So what he's telling us is that this time frame extends through the Assyrian Empire, through the Babylonian Empire, up until the time that Greece comes, and it doesn't it doesn't end there. So let's look at verse twenty four. But ships shall come from the coast of Katim; they shall afflict Asher and will afflict Eber. So they will also come to an end. And actually, I believe, um, yeah. So that word they, so they also will come. To destruction, it's not accurate. Literal translation is, but he also shall perish forever. So this is interesting. Verse 24, the literal translation, and ships shall come from the coast of Katim, they shall afflict Asher and shall afflict Eber, but he also shall perish forever. Switch to the plural to the singular. Right? So <clears throat> the he he's talking about is probably Alexander himself. 
he will perish forever. Um, who rises up after Greece? Rome. So that's the place in the chronology that we're at, right? Assyria, all the way through Greece, and then Rome displaces Greece. Well, that's the end of the chronology, which lets us know that's when the star and scepter, because he's saying, I see him, verse 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. He's telling us when that's going to happen. It's going to happen after Greece is destroyed. Well, when's, when's Jesus come? After Greece is destroyed in the, in, during the empire of Rome. Now, this is really cool because, <clears throat> again, these names are documented. And it's letting us know from 1400 B.C., that we're going to have the Assyrians first. And then after the, the power comes from that land, right? And, and think about it. Where was the Assyrian Empire headquartered? Okay, in that whole land. Where was the Babylonian? Still inside the land of Asher, in that whole Mesopotamian land. What about Persia? Same thing. That same. And so the first empire to come out of that or, or not from that geographic region are the folks from Katim, Greece. First Maccabees lets us know that's exactly where they came from, right? And they afflict Asher and Eber. So he's talking geographical regions, the Western Semitic people, the Eastern Semitic people, that whole geographic area. But then they're going to be destroyed. They were destroyed by Rome. There we go. There's a chronology of where, of when the, the star and the scepter were going to come. I know that was kind of, kind of detailed. Um, questions or comments on that? Cause that's all I got for tonight. And actually we're out of time. That wear you out. So it's obviously, um, necessary to know some history and some language in order to be able to figure this one out. Yeah, that's that's a lot of insight. I never would have picked up on that. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Yeah, and, and what's really cool is that you can go back into Genesis and you can get all these names. Right, Genesis chapter ten, Genesis chapter eleven. That's where I did my. That's where I did my genealogical research. That's how I found out. You know, that's how you find out that Eber is a great grandchild of Shem, and Asher is also a descendant of Shem. And then you just you trace, uh, you know, who the Kenites are a little bit, um, and you know, you can you can internet's a great thing. You can find a, a lot of that information on there, and then you also find, uh, you know, who Katim, where where Katim is located. You know, right out of First Maccabees there, which is kind of cool, uh, and it lays it lays it all out. It's really it's really kind of neat. Yeah, it's kind of it's almost mind boggling. Think about how this whole story is orchestrated. Um, you know, it it it's just how 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 intricate the details are how so neatly tied together uh the old and the new testament every mm -hmm. every little detail and how it's just perfectly i mean it's like a it's like a jigsaw puzzle you know i mean i don't know how else to explain it but i mean and, and i've said it before it's just it's, it's incredible how this 
all of this information, this story comes together. And I mean, to, 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 when, when you, when you start to fathom some of this stuff, when you start to realize, you know, it's not just a bunch of stories. It's not just a bunch of violence, you know, some of the, I've, I've heard some people say, uh, it, it, it's just, um, it, it's mind boggling. Yeah. Incredible to, 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 to see that when, when, when you're not, not that it's easy to, to wrap your mind around it, but when you start realizing it, that there's so much more to get involved with it, it, it really, man, just an eye opener to say the least, very least. It's, it's one of the coolest ones out there because, like I said, you know, written, written 1400 BC. <clears throat> and of course, your, your liberal, uh, you know, commentators and Bible scholars are going to say, well, that wasn't written in 1400 BC. That was, that was uh, penned and, and consolidated and coalesced probably during the time of Ezra. Um, and I'm thinking, okay, even if it is in the time of Ezra, it's still prophetic, dude, because you got the whole Katim Greece issue, and by the time of Ezra, that hadn't happened yet. But where's your proof that it was that that it coalesced into a into a writing by the time of Ezra? How do you know when this part was written? And see, so the the it, it's just like it's just like evolution. Evolution, by its very nature, automatically rules out any kind of divine spark, any kind of divine intervention, it automatically rules it out so it can't even consider it. It's not even in the realm of truth for them. With the Bible, with, with a lot of the liberal Bible scholars, they don't even really believe in a God. And if they do believe in a God, he's more of a deistic God where he's kind of out there at a distance just watching everything going on. And they definitely don't believe in any person, any anything prophetic whatsoever. Um, so if when they look at this passage, they don't even consider the fact that Moses wrote it 1400 BC and that it's prophetic. They say, well, if it's like this, it had to be written later after all everything was already done and then written back in as a prophecy later. You know, so they actually believe the Bible is one big fat lie and anything that's prophetic has been, you know, re, you know imposed into the text after the, 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 the event actually took place. Yeah, well, Satan also knew... The scripture fairly well, at least the words of it, know how to, knew yep. it well enough to, knew, to know how to twist it. So yep. what do you expect? Yep, exactly. Exactly. All right, I'm going to turn off the recording here um, and we can chat a little bit more.